Welcome to Behind the Knife's Absite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated Absite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day and dominate the Absite. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligature Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the MaxTac Motorized Fixation Device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Sonicision Curved Jaw Cordless Ultrasonic Device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Nice Absite Review today um, with Kevin, and we're talking about hematology and immunology. So let's start with some uh, basics, the coagulation pathway. So uh, Kevin, what factors are measured by uh, PTT? So when we measure PTT, what factors are we measuring? Yeah, so all of the factors except for factor seven. Great. All factors except for factor seven is, is, is what's measured with the PTT. And what's our goal? Let's say in a patient that we're heparinizing, um, what is our goal PTT? Yeah, we want a goal PTT between 60 and 90. Great. And the way I remember that too is there's that's also a half life. Sixty to ninety is the half life. Sixty to ninety minutes. So, goal PTT of uh, of uh, uh, sixty to ninety with heparin, whose half life is sixty to ninety minutes. Um, okay, Kevin. How about which measure of coagulation is best uh, used to evaluate liver synthetic function? Yeah. So this is your PT or INR, which measures factors two, seven, nine, and ten. Great. So your PT, INR, 2, 7, 9, and 10, those are all made by your liver. So those are really your best indicators of your overall liver function. What factors are not synthesized in the liver? So that's factor 8 and von Willebrand's factor. Okay. Factor 8 and factor and von Willebrand's factor not synthesized in the liver. Okay. So let's go through some different blood products and what the components of those blood products are and what situations you would want to use that. So for everybody listening, if you go to our Absite companion book, there'll be a table that has these, but we're just going to walk through them here briefly. So Kevin, cryoprecipitate, what are the components of cryo? So that's going to have factor eight, von Wilbern's factor, and fibrinogen. Okay. And what situations would you use cryoprecipitate? So it's a great tool in hemophilia A, Von Willebrand's disease and hypofibrinogenemia. Okay, great. P, how about P? What's an FFP? I like this one because it's all the coagulation factors. Great. And so some fibrinogen. All, yep. So it's got all the coagulation factors, got a little bit of fibrinogen in there. And when do you use FFP? Any coagulation disorder. Okay. So yeah, you can use FFP for really any, it's your go to for somebody who's bleeding. Platelets? What's in platelets? This one's pretty obvious. Platelets. 
Yep. So platelets, the component is platelets, and you would use this for people whose platelets are low, so thrombocytopenia. Same thing for red blood cells. We won't go into that. Packed red blood cells obviously have red blood cells, and you give it to people who are who are, are low on, on their hemoglobin or as part of a balanced blood product resuscitation during trauma. Now, how about PCC, prothrombin complete concentrate? What What's in there? So that's the vitamin K dependent factor in Okay. And these, what do we use? What do you use PCC for most commonly? Yeah, it's best used for warfarin reversal. Yep. PCC is a great thing to use for patients on Coumadin who are bleeding. Now we're going to go into some of our different transfusion reactions. This is, the way you'll get this on the test is you'll have a, a patient who gets a, a, a transfusion for some reason, most likely anemia, and they develop a fever when receiving the transfusion, and that w- w- should immediately make you concerned for a transfusion reaction. And we classify these as moderate or severe. So let's talk about moderate transfusion re- reaction first, Kevin. What do you expect to see clinically for somebody who's having a moderate transfusion reaction? Yeah, so this person will generally have fever, tachycardia, headaches, urticaria, puritis, rigors, palpitations, mild dyspnea, anxiety or restlessness, and flushing. Okay. And what, what's your first step when you get this, per, this in, in real life and on the test? What's your first step, the next step? Stop the transfusion. Great. Okay, stop the transfusion. And then where do you go from there with, with, with moderate to transfusion reaction? So you want to let the blood bank know that you're concerned about that and you need to see the patient immediately. So then you send the unit of blood that you're transfusing so they can evaluate it. You send a urine sample and blood samples from a vein opposite of the infusion site for evaluation. And how about, how about some medications that you can give? So you can give antihistamines and antipyretics. Okay. And, and what else? Yeah, you uh, definitely want to get some antihistamines and some antipyretics, but what else can you give? Also corticosteroids and bronchodilators if anaphylactic symptoms are present. Okay, great. Okay. Now, how about severe uh, transfusion reaction? So they're going to have many of the same things, just on the, believe it or not, more severe side. So they're going to have fever, tachycardia, chest pain, hypotension, respiratory distress, headache, rigors, hemoglobinuria, anxiety, restlessness, and unexplained bleeding. Uh, yeah, so that's right. So yeah, a lot of the same things. It's just more severe, and they're starting to have some of those more concerning systemic signs like hypotension and unexplained bleeding. So again, how do you manage these? Once again, stop the transfusion, notify the blood bank, and see the patient immediately. Send the unit of blood that they're being transfused, send a urine sample and blood samples for evaluation. Okay, great. And uh, what is your medical management? IV fluids, and then epinephrine and diuretics. Great. So yeah, these are these like I've said, they're hypotensive. They they're systemic. They have bleeding. They have hemolysis. So they need resuscitation. So IV fluids. You need blood pressure support, and you need to keep the kidneys alive. And uh, as well as you can add those corticosteroids, uh, as well as the bronchodilators if anaphylactic symptoms are present. So Jason, do you say rigors or rigors? I would say it correctly. I say rigors. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's move on to hematology in trauma. Thromboelastography has become more widely used and widely available, and it certainly is fair game for the test. It's a little bit difficult to talk through. So again, go to our ABSIDE companion. There's a, a 
tag a thromboelastography graph on there, as well as we talk about the definitions of some of the different components, the R time, K time, alpha angle, the LY30, to make sure you have an understanding of what that looks like and, and what the uh, principles are and what all those things mean, because it can certainly is a fair game for the app side uh, in this day and age. So Moving on, though, so we're, we're, let's talk about some various bleeding disorders, Kevin. So what's the most common congenital bleeding disorder? That's von Willebrand's disease. And what's von Willebrand's disease? So with this disease, the platelets cannot adhere to the wall of the injured vessel. Okay. And there's three different types of von Willebrand. So let's walk through those. So type one, it's, which is the most common. So most type one von Willebrand's disease, most common. What, how do you define that? So there's a reduced quantity of von Willebrand factor. Okay. And how do you treat it? So if we go back up and rewind about one minute, we said that cryoprecipitate has von Willebrand factors, and you can also give desmopressin. Okay, good. Desmopressin causes release of some of that native present that is there, and as well as cryoprecipitate, so giving additional von Willebrand's factor. Okay, so type two. What's how do you define type two von Willebrand's disease? So this is actually a dysfunctional von Willebrand's factor. Okay, and so it's there; it just doesn't work. So how do you treat it? So once again, you can give desmopressin or cryoprecipitate. Okay, all right, and then type three. What is that? This is the complete absence of von Willebrand factor. Okay, yeah, so it's not even there. So how do you treat this, and how is it different from the other two? Yeah, so this one, you can once again give cryoprecipitate or factor eight replacement, but desmopressin will not work. Yeah, so yeah, the key there is that desmopressin, which causes, induces the release of von Willebrand's factor, will not work with people of type three because they have complete absence of the factor. What about a lab test? What, what do you see with von Willebrand's factor? With the lab test, you're going to see a prolonged PTT. You can also check for plasmin levels of von Willebrand factor antigen. You can check for the von Willebrand factor activity and activity levels of factor eight. Great. Okay. Okay. So moving on from von Willebrand's to some other bleeding disorders, notably hemophilias. So hemophilia A and hemophilia B. So Kevin, with hemophilia A, what factor are you missing and what do you see on a lab test? So hemophilia A sounds eight. So you're missing factor eight and this will have a prolongation of your PTT. Okay, great. Hemophilia A, factor eight, prolongation of PTT. How do you treat it? So you can give them factor eight, desmopressin or cryoprecipitate. Perfect. Okay. How about hemophilia B? This is factor nine and you're going to see a prolongation of the PTT. Okay, great. Factor nine, you also see a prolongation of PTT and how do you treat it? Factor nine or FFP. Yeah, factor nine or FFP. Great. Okay. Okay. So moving, sticking with bleeding disorders, but now let's talk about some hypercoagulable bleeding disorder. So let's say you have a patient who has a DVT as well as a strong family history of DVT. So what are you thinking about? Yeah. So I'm thinking of the common hypercoagulable disorders, the most common being factor five Leiden. Um, and then you have your prothrombin gene defect, 20210 protein CNS deficiency, antithrombin-3 deficiency, and hyperhomocysteinemia. Yeah, so those are all your heritable blood clotting disorders. Certainly somebody with a strong family history, so the factor 5 Leiden, which is the most common, your prothrombin gene defect, the 
20210 or 20210, however you want to say that. Protein CNS deficiency, antithrombin 3 deficiency, and hyperhomocysteinemia. Perfect. So what's the pathophysiology between that factor five Leiden mutation, which is again, the most common and, and we see it pretty frequently, but what's the pathophysiology behind that? Yeah. So factor five cannot bind with protein C. Okay. So that's a mechanism of action between uh, your factor five Leiden, your, your, your factor five is unable to bind with protein C. Okay. How about antithrombin three deficiency? How, how does it present and what's the treatment? Yeah, so this is those patients that do not respond to heparin. And what's the treatment? So you can give them antithrombin-3 concentrate or FFP. It's counterintuitive, but if you have a patient that does not, that they're, you're giving them heparin and their PTT is not prolonging, they're not responding, you may want to consider giving them P, which seems a little counterintuitive, but that then can work with the heparin and and have them then respond to the the heparin. So you mentioned hyperhomocysteinemia. So how do you treat patients with that? Yeah, so this is one that you can treat them with vitamins. You can give them folic acid and B12. Folic acid and B12 for treatment for hyperhomocysteinemia. Perfect. So one that we didn't mention was antiphospholipid syndrome, which is also very common. So how do you diagnose this and how do you treat these patients? Yeah, so... Most commonly, you're going to see this uh, with symptoms of lupus, prior DVTs, or recurrent pregnancy loss. And these patients will have prolonged PTT, but they're actually hypercoagulable. Okay. Yeah. So if you see that, that prolongation, they usually give you that in the, the question stem, that prolongation of the PTT, but clinically they're hypercoagulable. This is most likely um, due to an antiphospholipid syndrome. And this is caused by antibodies to cardiolipin and the lupus anticoagulant. How do you treat these, Kevin? Yeah. So you treat these patients with a heparin bridge to Coumadin. Okay, so we anticoagulate them most commonly with a heparin drip, and then you can transition that to an oral anticoagulant, most commonly Coumadin. Speaking of oral anticoagulants, there are anticoagulants in general. They're becoming more and more common. We're seeing a lot of patients on anticoagulation, specifically a lot of these DOACs that are out there. So let's walk through some of them. And importantly, let's talk about their reversal agents. So these are commonly tested. So we talked about one already, but that's Coumadin or Warfarin. So what's how do you reverse people who are on Coumadin? Yeah, you have a few options. If you need immediate reversal, you can use PCC. If you need rapid reversal, less than one hour, you can give FFP. Or if you need a little more delayed, you can use vitamin K. Yeah, I guess the way I would look at that is is how what's happening with the patient. Is it somebody with a life-threatening head bleed? PCC is becoming, it's very expensive, but it's very fast acting. And you can really dial in and the reversal. If the patient needs, if maybe you don't have PCC available to you, or the patient also needs volume in that case, uh, FFP might be a good choice. It's also very effective. And then if you are, have that patient who doesn't necessarily have life-threatening bleeding, but you do need to reverse them and you need to provide prolonged reversal, vitamin K is a good option and you, you do see pretty good results uh, within about six hours. Now, how about Pradaxa? How do you reverse yeah. Pradaxa? So they have a, a new treatment called Praxbind, which is a monoclonal antibody. And you can also use a dialysis. 
Yeah. So yeah, the answer for Pradaxa, there used to not be a great reversal agent. So dialysis was the answer in the test. But now with Praxbind, the monoclonal antibody, and sometimes they'll just put that, a monoclonal antibody is the answer. They won't actually use the brand name Praxbind. That's, that is a, an option now. So for Pradaxa, Dabigatrin was a generic name, which is what they'll give you on the test. Monoclonal antibody or Praxbind for reversal. Okay. How about Xarelto or Rivaroxaban? Yeah, so you can use Andexa, which is recombinant factor 10A. Yeah, recombinant factor 10A, Andexa. Again, they don't often use the brand name, so to make sure you know what these things actually are. Eliquis, Pixaban, how do you reverse that? The same, Andexa or recombinant factor 10A. Great, okay. How about just heparin? How do we, once we have a patient that's you're getting, you're heparinizing, you probably deal with this as a vascular surgeon. How do you reverse that, say, intraoperatively? Yeah, you give them protamine and give it slowly. Okay, protamine sulfate, perfect. And then uh, Lovinox or noxaparin? Yeah, so you can use protamine in these patients, it's just not as effective. Okay, so less effective than with the unfractionated heparin, of course. So what is the, we, what's the mechanism of action of heparin now that we're, as you mentioned it? Yeah, so this potentiates antithrombin-3. Okay, and so it makes it actually a thousand times more effective. So that's why those patients with that antithrombin-3 deficiency don't react to heparin. And you, as you mentioned, you can uh, reverse with protamine. What, what do you have to watch for as far as side effects of protamine? Yeah, so protamine can cause profound hypotension and bradycardia, especially if it's given too fast. Okay, perfect. Let's say you have this patient that, that uh, had been given heparin, and let's say they have a surgery, and then on post-op day eight, that their platelets drop pretty significantly, over 50%. So what does this immediately make you concerned for? So pretty much any patient who has exposure to heparin and has a precipitous drop in their platelets, what do you should be concerned for? <clears throat> Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or HIT. Okay. Again, we see uh, with this, you should see a platelet drop of over 50%, and usually it's within five to 10 days of that heparin exposure. We have a scoring system that we can calculate that either helps us rule in or rule out this as a, as a possibility. What is that scoring system? That's the four T's score. So you look to see if they have thrombocytopenia, the timing of it, if they've had any thromboses, and other possible causes of their thrombocytopenia. Okay, great. And how do you diagnose it? Yeah, so using ELISA test, testing for antiplatelet factor four for initial screening, and then to confirm it is the serotonin release assay. Great. ELISA test, antiplatelet factor four, confirmation with your serotonin release assay, your SRA. Okay, and most importantly, how do you manage it? So stop the heparin immediately, including any type of Lovenox. And then you're generally going to start anticoagulation with, with something such as argatroban or bivalrudin or fondoparino. Yes, that's right. You want to stop the heparin immediately. And then one of those other agents, most commonly probably the fondoparinox, but also argatroban or bivalrudin are options to anticoagulate those patients. It is worth noting that patients who have had who, who have had hit and then are re-exposed, it can develop rap, rapid onset thrombocytopenia. So that's not necessarily within that f- five to ten days. It can happen uh, very early within the first day after their re-exposure. So just keep that in mind. How do we monitor Lovenox? We have all these PTTs and PTs and all that stuff for the other drugs, but how do we de- determine the effectiveness of, of our Lovenox? So you can check the factor 10A levels. Good. Perfect. Okay. 
Going back a little bit to talk about Coumadin, how, what's the mechanism of action of Coumadin? So Coumadin inhibits vitamin K, a protein that activates vitamin K, so VKORC, and this prevents the creation of factors 10, 9, 7, and 2, as well as protein CNS. Right. Okay. So it's all your vitamin K dependent proteins, which is why, as we mentioned earlier, vitamin K is a great reversal agent for Coumadin. 2, 7, 9, and 10, as well as protein CNS, which is why that sometimes you can see almost a little hypercoagulable at first, which is the idea behind the heparin bridge as we inhibit those protein CNS, which have a shorter half-life than some of the others. But yeah, absolutely. Inhibit your vitamin K-dependent factors. It is contraindicated in pregnant patients. Keep that in mind. It is teratogenics and don't use it in pregnant patients. Kevin, let's say you start a patient on Coumadin and they develop skin necrosis. What's the name of this phenomenon and what causes it? Yeah, you alluded to it, but it's the warfarin-induced skin necrosis. And the mechanism of this is that there's a short half-life of protein CNS, which are actually natural anticoagulants. So there's a brief period of time when the patient is actually hypercoagulable because the protein CNS have been inhibited. Yeah, and again, as I mentioned, this is why we typically bridge patients with Lovenox or heparin. The incidence is probably pretty rare, and there are a lot of people that are not bridging, depending on the indication for the anticoagulation. But just be aware that is a thing, and you might see it on the test. Okay, I mentioned some of those direct oral anticoagulants, the DOACs, that are becoming increasingly uh, common in our elderly population, as anybody who's on any type of trauma service can attest to. So let's go, we mentioned it briefly, let's go again over their reversal agents, and let's talk a little bit about their mechanisms of actions. Dabgatran or Pradaxa, what's the mechanism of action? Yeah, so this inhibits thrombin directly, and then the old school answer is dialysis, and the new answer is Praxmind, and I'll let you pronounce the antibody that is generic of yeah, Praxmind. Just, just, you just have to know it's a monoclonal antibody. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. How about Hexaband or Rivaroxaban? Mechanism um, of action and reversal agents. So yeah, this is again, uh, inhibits thrombin. The reversal for these is PCC. It gives a partial reversal or Indexa, which acts as a decoy receptor for factor 10A inhibitor molecules. Yeah, so you can give PCC and, and people do. You, it's not as effective as it is with Coumadin. You might get a partial reversal, but as we mentioned earlier, that index or that recombinant factor 10A would be the reversal agent of choice for those agents. Okay, so moving on to thrombolytics. So TPA, what's the mechanism of action of TPA? So this activates plasminogen and breaks down fibrinogen. Okay. And our normal fibrinogen levels are between 200 to 400 milligrams per deciliter. How do you reverse TPA? So aminocaproic acid. Aminocaproic acid is a reversal agent for TPA. Okay. Uh, Let's say we have a patient that we're thinking about using. A good example would be a patient with a massive PE who is becoming unstable, and we want to give them TPA. We want to give them thrombolytics. What are some absolute contraindications? Yeah. So if they have active internal bleeding, if they've had a recent GI bleed, if they've had a recent CVA, cerebral vascular accident or neurosurgery, or if they have intracranial pathology. Yeah. The way you might see this, you'll see maybe a patient with a brain tumor or something, or a patient that had recent neurosurgery and now they have a PE and they'll give that patient to you. And just know that 
T systemic TPA would not be an option because of that's an absolute contraindication, and a patient would uh, most likely uh, what they're trying to get you to go for would be a catheter-directed thrombolysis with interventional radiology. So those are your absolute contraindications to TPA. What are your relative contraindications? Yeah, so if they've had surgery within 10 days, if they've had a recent organ biopsy, a recent delivery, or a recent major trauma, and also uncontrolled hypertension. Sure. And then you'll have to base a clinical scenario. Obviously, if the patient's dying, I think we've probably all seen this, patients with massive PEs after surgery, and they will get TPA, and you just have to bite off that, so you might have to deal with some bleeding as a result. Okay. So that's, let's move on to, so we're talking about hematology and immunology. So let's talk about a little bit of immunology. So this is something we don't probably don't, aren't as familiar with as surgeons. We don't deal with this a whole lot, but it is something that we are tested on. So we're going to be diving in a little bit on the cellular level here with immunology. When we talk about the major histocompatibility complex, the MHC, what are our two classes of MHC, Kevin? Yeah. So you have your class one and class two. Okay. And class one, what, where do we find class one? Yeah. So these are the identifiers of all nucleated cells in the body. Okay. So yeah, these are MHS class one, A, B, and C. They're present on all nucleated cells. They activate CD8 cells. So they bind cytotoxic T cells. So MHS class one binds cytotoxic T cells. Okay, how about MH class two? Where do we find those? Yeah, these are a little more specialized. They present on the antigen presenting cells. Okay, so MH class two, antigen presenting cells, they activate CD4 and they activate helper T cells. So they stimulate your, the uh, antibody formation after B cells are interacted with. So uh, the way I remember that is your MH class one and CD8. So one times eight is eight and your image class two with your CD4, two times four is eight. So everything kind of multiplies up to eight. It's a stupid way of remembering it, but it's the way I always remember it. Okay. All right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about those CD4 and those CD8 cells. So your helper T cells, your CD4, what do they do? So let's say you got your CD2 binds to it and that stimulates your CD4 to release some things. What kind of things does your helper T cells release? Yes, these release IL-2, IL-4, and interferon. Okay. And what is IL-2? What's the role of those things? So interleukin-2. Yeah, so interleukin-2 stimulates the maturation of cytotoxic T cells. Interleukin-4 triggers the B cells to mature into plasma cells. And then interferon activates macrophages. Yeah. Okay. IL-2 stimulates cytotoxic T cells for... B cells mature into plasma cells and interferon activates macrophages. So those are all released from your helper T cells after it's stimulated by that MHS or MHC class two. Okay. And then your cytotoxic T cells, which are stimulated or binds with MHC class one. What is, what do your cytotoxic T cells do? Yeah. So they identify the non-self antigens presented on MH class one. Okay. Perfect. Now, how about natural killer cells? Very cool name, natural killer cells. How do they identify their targets? So they recognize cells that lack the self-MHC, and they attack cells bound with antibodies. Yeah, so they recognize other, right? So if you don't have your, those self-identified or those self-MHC cells, these will natural killer cells will hunt these down, these cells down and kill them. 
Okay, let's go through some antibodies. So immunoglobin M, A, G, D, and E. It's important to know what they're responsible for and what their individual characteristics are, because these are sometimes tested. These are all released by B cells for antibody-mediated immunities, IgM. Where, where, what are, tell me a little bit about IgM. These are secreted during primary immune response after initial exposure to an antigen. Okay. How about IgG? This is your secondary immune response. Yeah. So IgM is your primary. IgG is your secondary immune response. IgA? This is your mucosal immunity. Okay. Yep. So mucosal immunity. So they're found in your Peyer's patches in the gut. They're found in breast milk. They're passed on to the infants through breastfeeding and really in all secretions. Okay. IgD? So this is the antigen receptor on B cells. Okay. And IgE? This is the one that's involved in all allergic reactions and parasite infections. Okay, great. Okay, so yeah, those are your important antibodies, some characteristics. It's good to have some familiarity with those, so you don't want to miss those easy points. Other places where you can miss easy points are on cytokines. So just remember what cytokines do. So TNF-alpha, where is it produced and what does it do? So this is produced by macrophages. It activates neutrophils and macrophages to increase cell recruitment and further cytokine production. Okay, great. How about IL-1? So this is the main source is from macrophages, a similar effect to TNF-alpha and causes fevers. Yeah, so this is a, a fever-inducing. So IL-1 is responsible for the fever. For whatever reason, I've seen that before. Okay, IL-6. So this increases the production of hepatic acute phase proteins. Okay, so yeah, your hepatic acute phase proteins, your CRP, your amyloid, your C3 complement, fibrinogen, haptoglobin, cerebral plasma, alpha-1 antitrypsin, those are all your hepatic acute phase proteins. And IL-6 acts on the liver and increases the production of these hepatic acute phase proteins. Great. IL-8. So this stimulates your polymorphonuclear leukocytes, also known as PMNs, and causes chemotaxis and angiogenesis. Yeah, the, the big one there is that chemotaxis and angiogenesis. So IL-8 um, uh, causes chemotaxis. And uh, IL-10? So this decreases the inflammatory response. Okay, good. IL-10 decreases inflammatory response. That's important. Okay, something else that will show up from time to time is your different hypersensitivity reactions. I, I always found these confusing, so it's really good to, to go through them. So again, there's a good chart in the book if you want to refer to that, but let's just walk through them. So your type one hypersensitivity reaction, that's your immediate hypersensitivity reaction. What's the mechanism of action and what are some examples? Okay. So an immediate hypersensitivity reaction is when the IgE binds to mast cells and basophils, and this triggers the release of a histamine, serotonin, and bradykinin. Okay. And some examples? Examples would be someone allergic to peanuts, hay fever, or a bee sting. Yeah, so again, immediate hypersensitivity reaction, IgE mediated with mast cells, it's your type 1 hypersensitivity um, reaction. So yeah, you think of your peanut allergies or your bee stings. Okay, how about type 2? This is a antibody mediated, right? So antibody mediated. So what antibodies mediated? Yeah, so typically you're thinking of your IgG or your secondary immunity or IgM binds the cells and it's destroyed via cytotoxic T cells or the complement system. Okay, and what are some examples of this? So this is ABO incompatibility or hyperacute rejection. 
Yeah, so think, think about your transfusion reactions for this one. So this is antibody-mediated, type 2, IgG, IgM, antibody-mediated. Okay, type 3, hypersensitivity. So this is an antigen-antibody complexes that are deposited on tissue. Uh, the complement is activated and neutrophils attack. Okay, and examples of this? So you see this in serum sickness and in lupus. Yeah, okay. So this is an immune complex deposition. So you have these antigen-antibody complexes that are deposited into the tissue, activates complement, neutrophils come in. Again, as you mentioned, lupus is a good example, serum sickness. Okay, and then type 4. This is your delayed type hypersensitivity. So how does that work? So this is the antigen presenting cells present the antigen to the CD4 cells and the macrophages are activated. And what are some examples of this? So that's your PPD tests that we're also familiar with and contact dermatitis. Great. Yeah. So type 4, delayed type, antigen presenting cells involves helper cells. PPD test is a perfect example of that. Okay. So just know your trans, know your hypersensitivity reactions. Um, okay. So moving on to transplant immunology. So just still talking about immunology, but now transplant. So when we talk about transplant immunolo immunology, we talk about HLA classes. So what HLA classes are the most important when determining a recipient and donor match? So it's your HLA A, B, and DR. Okay. So A, B, and DR. These are, again, present on all nucleated cells. And these are the things we're looking for when we're looking for, to see who's a match. So <clears throat> something that's pretty high yield when it comes to transplant is different types of rejection. Their timing with regard to the transplant, as well as their pathophysiology, and perhaps most importantly, the treatment. So we're going to walk through these different types of rejections, transplant rejections. So Kevin, hyperacute rejection. What's the timing, mechanism of action, and treatment for a hyperacute rejection? So this is less than one hour. Generally, these have preformed antibodies that activate the complement cascade. Okay. And again, what's the treatment? Emergent retransplant. Okay. Yeah. So bad day. So high pre rejection, that would obviously happen if you have, don't have, for whatever reason, that, that's the match, a match donor, and you have preformed antibodies that activates that complement cascade and emergent retransplantation is the answer. Okay. So that's hyperacute. What about accelerated rejection? What's the timing and mechanism of action for that? Yeah, so this is days to less than a week kind of time frame. And so you have sensitized T cells that are responding to the donor HLA. Okay, so yeah, days to week or days to a week, we already have some sensitized T cells. And what's the treatment for accelerated rejection? So you increase immunosuppression, you can give pulse steroids, and you can consider antibody treatments. Okay. Okay, moving on then to our acute rejection. So we talked about our hyperacute, our accelerated, and now acute. So we break these down into cellular or humoral, and what's the timing and mechanism of action for acute rejection? Yeah, so this occurs over weeks to months. So you can think of your kind of discharge patient following up in clinic at this point. And so for the cellular rejection, you have T cells that respond to donor HLA. For the humoral, it's the antibodies to the donor antigens. Okay. 
So the important, I think the important thing to remember, I don't know if you'll get broke, broken down into these, the different components, cellular versus humoral, but acute rejection is weeks to months. And then what is the treatment? So similar as before, you can increase the immunosuppression, you give pulse steroids or possible antibody treatments. And then the only difference for the humoral is there's the option of plasmapheresis. Okay, great. So yeah, increasing immune suppression, pulse steroids, antibody treatments, and, and then possibly plasmapheresis. That's your acute rejection, weeks to months. Okay, moving on now to chronic rejection. What's the time frame for chronic rejection? Yeah, this is months to years. And so this involves the T cells and antibody formation. Okay, and treatment? You can increase the immunosuppression or you can retransplant. Okay, yeah. So some, ultimately these patients, obviously there's a lot of caveats there whether or not they're a candidate, if their organ is refailing, but consideration of retransplantation, but certainly increased immunosuppression for uh, most of your rejections. Okay, so let's talk about some of those different immunosuppressants. Let's just go through them. Okay, so steroids. You mentioned steroids. What's the mechanism of action? When do you use them? What are the side effects? So steroids inhibit inflammatory cells and attenuates the cytokine production. These are used in induction, maintenance, and acute rejection. There's a lot of side effects to include adrenal insufficiency and impaired wound healing. Okay. Another common one we see is mycophenolate. So what's the mechanism of action for mycophenolate? Yeah, so this inhibits de novo purine synthesis, which inhibits T-cell growth. And this is used for your maintenance therapy, and patients can have GI intolerance or pancytopenia from it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense, right? If you're developing, if you're inhibiting de novo purine synthesis, you might see a pancytopenia. Okay. Cyclosporin? So this inhibits calcineurin and decreases cytokine production. This is also used in maintenance. Um, it has quite a few side effects, though. You have hepatotoxicity, nephrotoxicity, potentially hemolytic uremic syndrome, seizures, and tremors. Okay. So and the key thing there with that mechanism is it inhibits calcineurin for cyclosporin. It inhibits calcineurin. And that's distinguished from tacrolimus, right? How does tacrolimus act? It also decreases cytokine production, but through a different mechanism. So what mechanism for tacrolimus? So that inhibits the FK binding protein, which decreases cytokine production. Okay, great. And again, as you mentioned, these are maintenance drugs and also can have some nephrotoxicity, neurotoxicity, GI disturbances, and impaired wound healing. Serolemus acts a little bit differently. And what does serolemus do? So this inhibits mTOR, which inhibits T and B cell response to IL-2. Okay. And what's the big, again, another maintenance drug, but what's the big uh, side effect with serolemus? With serolemus, you can have interstitial lung disease. Yeah, interstitial lung disease is a side effect of serolemus. Okay. Um, how about the anti-thymocyte uh, globulin, ATG? Yeah, so this is a polyclonal antibody against T-cell antigens. This is used for induction and acute rejection. The side effects can be cytokine release syndrome, PTLD, and myelosuppression. Okay. Again, there's a good chart in the book. Just make sure you review that. Specifically, a lot of these uh, do similar things, but act through different mechanisms. And those are occasionally asked. I wouldn't say it's the highest yield, but if you want to get to that, you want to get from that 98th to 99th percentile, you, you may need to know those different mechanisms. Okay. Something that is a little bit higher yield are, are the opportunistic affections that happen with immunocompromised transplant patients. So Kevin, walk me through some different opportunistic infections and what the treatments are. 
So for the immunosuppressed patients, what are they at risk for? There's a few things. CMV, treatment, you can give them ganglocyclovir. You can get the pneumocystis gyrovecchi, treatment is Bactrim. Some of them will get Epstein-Barr virus. The treatment is to decrease immunosuppressive therapy. You can get the PTLD patients, also known as the post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder. And for these patients, you want to decrease immunosuppressive therapy and also consider rituximab. For the BK virus, you can decrease immunosuppressive therapy, give them lufonamide, sidofovir, or fluoroquinolones. Perfect. Okay. That, that's Again, these are things we don't think about often, unless you're a transplant surgeon or just off a transplant rotation. It's good to brush up on these things before the abscite. So let's go into some hematology and immunology quick hits. You ready, Kevin? I'm ready. Okay. So again, let's talk about some factors. So factors, what factors are produced by the liver? All of them except for factor eight and von Wilburn's factor. Perfect. Okay. Which factor uh, of all the factors has the shortest half-life? Factor seven. Factor seven has the shortest half-life. Okay. The mechanism of action of thrombin, also known as factor two. Yeah. So this converts fibrinogen to fibrin, which activates platelets. Thrombin activates platelets by converting fibrinogen to fibrin. Mechanism of action of antithrombin three, AT3. So this binds and inhibits thrombin. And heparin activates antithrombin 3. Great. Heparin activates antithrombin 3. Antithrombin 3 binds and inhibits thrombin. Okay. So a patient with a platelet disorder will have what coagulation lab abnormality? So they'll have increased bleeding time. Right. So your PT and your PTT may not uh, be affected if you have an isolated platelet disorder. So you need to look for that increased bleeding time. Okay. Coumadin affects which portion of the coagulation cascade, the intrinsic or the extrinsic? Extrinsic. And a good way of remembering that is WEPT, warfarin extrinsic factors, and you can test that with PT. Yes, WEPT, W-E-P-T, warfarin extrinsic, PT is a test. Okay, what factors does warfarin prevent from being produced? Vitamin K-dependent factors, 2, 7, 9, 10, protein CNS. 27910 CNS. Perfect. What's the most common inherited hypercoagulability disorder? Factor 5 Leiden. Factor 5 Leiden. That's right. Okay. Okay. What electrolyte disorder may you see after massive transfusion? Hypocalcemia. That's, that's a citrated bag. So that's why we, there's a couple reasons we might see it in trauma patients. But uh, after a massive transfusion uh, from the citrate in the bag, you might see hypocalcemia, which is why it's important to give calcium for these, all these patients. Okay. Okay. So let's quick hit immunology. What is the first immune cell to arrive at the site of injury? Neutrophils are the first ones there. What's the most common antibody in the body overall? Yeah, IgG is the most is the most common. What's the most common antibody found in the spleen? IgM. IgM is in the spleen. That's good. What antibody is, has the ability to cross the placenta and provide some protection to the fetus? IgG. IgG crosses the placenta. Kevin, so patients undergo splenectomy. What do you, how do you need to counsel these patients as far as risks of long-term risk of not having a spleen? Yeah. So there's a risk of overwhelming post-splenectomy sepsis, also known as opsis. So they have increased vulnerability to encapsulated bacteria. Okay. And what are those bacteria? So strep pneumoniae, haemophilus influenza, and Neisseria meningitidis. 
Yep, yep. So those encapsulated bacteria. Okay. So yeah, because splenectomy decreases your IgM levels, T cell numbers, and lymphocyte uh, proliferation uh, capability. So it, it, those patients are certainly at risk for ops long term. So transplant patients who undergo hyperacute rejection. What is the type of hypersensitivity reaction? Is this? It's a type two hypersensitivity reaction. Great. And the most common malignancy following transplant, this one's tested all the time. That would be your squamous cell carcinoma. Yep. Squamous cell carcinoma. Perfect. Okay. Well, that wraps it up for hematology and immunology. Again, something we don't see every day. One of those things you just need to review. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 app site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the ab site.